The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. All right. I am excited. Uh, I'm very excited. And I also feel a lot of pressure. Uh, Pastor Daniel saw fit to title this series, uh, All Time Greatest Hits. Uh, I can assure you, uh, Kenny and I gave him some grief over that title. Uh, I'm not, not a rebellious person. And, uh, and so as my act of rebellion tonight, I'm going to make sure this is an incredibly mediocre message. Uh, and so uh, I'm sorry you have to endure that. That's just how I have to get back at Daniel. Uh, so we are in John chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be looking at the woman at the well. And uh, let's get right into it because I feel like there's a lot to talk about tonight. So John 4 verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, Though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. We're not going to get into that section much tonight, but it's just interesting that they were keeping score as a way to try and be divisive between John and Jesus. Moving on. Verse 3, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. In verse 5, it says, so he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And then the woman said to Jesus, uh, sorry, then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is that you being a Jew ask a drink of me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And this is the last verse we'll read for now. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. I want to start with a thesis statement and then we'll pray. Kind of our, our look at this text tonight. And really, it's what it just jumps out and screams to me of this text and looking at this woman and what she was seeking after and right where Jesus met her. So the statement is, ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment are not meant to be found in love relationships, in our careers, in any and every goal that we have, in our things, our possessions, in our houses, in our finances, in our financial security. True satisfaction and fulfillment can only be found in Jesus. First find him, let him fill you up, and then see where he leads you, see what doors he opens up. But we begin with, our satisfaction is found in him and in him alone. Let's pray. God, we are, we are abundantly blessed each and every time we look to you. We are so unworthy and you are so worthy. And like our text tonight, and like so much of your word, you come to us by the well. Lord God, in our moments of weakness and our pain and our difficulty. And so we pray, Lord God, speak to us tonight in your word. We know that if we seek, you are there ready to receive us, to pour into us. And so we, we're seeking. We want to be poured into, Lord. Bless us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Amen. So as a newlywed, we were really young. We were too young. Looking back on it, it was crazy. 15 years ago, my wife and I got married. We celebrated our anniversary a couple months ago. I was 21. She was 20. And it gets, it gets crazier than that. I was 21. She was 20. Prior to our marriage, she was a student in Santa Barbara at Westmont College. Just paradise. Gorgeous. I had interned here, and then I felt called to go along with the junior high pastor to Missouri to help start a church. Uh, if I had said this in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with any of you, about 80% of you would have responded with misery, ha, ha, ha. Um, I've heard it a thousand times. And so, uh, so I was led to Missouri. I came back and we got married, and then I brought my 20-year-old wife, me 21, to a town called Deloge, Missouri. It's called Deloge, about 40 minutes south of St. Louis. And so we were newlyweds, figuring things out. I tried to teach her stick shift in the first couple months. Don't do that in your first couple months of marriage. Uh, we traded the stick shift in, we got an automatic. And so, uh, so there we are, we're a couple months in. We we're kind of, we've always been kind of not night owls. And so to my surprise, it's like 9.45, on a weeknight, and she says, I need chocolate. I don't know what to respond. I, you know, I'm kind of the baker in the family, and, uh, and I say, I don't even think we have chocolate chips, babe. I don't think we've got anything. And so she, uh, even though neither of us are night owl, she's earlier to bed. So I was shocked when she said, we need to go get some chocolate, because we don't go out at 9.45 at night. You know, I, I, I left the house recently in the dark, and I was like, this is weird leaving the house in the dark, right? So she says to me, we need to go and get some chocolate. And I just say to her, are you serious? This is where the first arm slap happened. Just like, not, you know, just a little arm slap, especially when we were younger. She thought I was invincible. And, uh, and so, you know, throwing things, but in a very fun way. Uh, and so arm slap happens. We go get in the car. We're driving to AM, PM just a little corner place to get some candy. We're walking through the aisles. She grabs one piece of candy. I grab a piece of candy. She grabs a second piece of candy and then kind of looks back at me. I grab a second piece of candy. And then she pauses. What are you doing? This is what she says to me. What are you doing? I'm like, I'm getting a second piece of candy. What's the problem? She says, if you get a second piece of candy, I won't feel special. I didn't know how to respond. Now, this is where you learn that one of your pastors is incredibly snarky, maybe a little feisty. I just look right into her beautiful 20-year-old's newlyweds eyes for the woman I dragged from Santa Barbara to Missouri, and I reach out and grab a third piece of candy. <laughs> Here, there's the second arm slap right there. Uh, and then she says, uh, we go and buy the candy, and, and I say some other things I probably shouldn't have said in line, just joking, about, I don't know. And then we go out of the store, and she sees a jack-in-the-box, and they have a cheesecake on the sign, and she says, we should get cheesecake. And I'm like, are you serious? And there comes the third arm slap. And, uh, and I think it was right then that she thought to herself, 
marriage doesn't satisfy all your needs and wants, and it's not going to do the trick. And so that's the point of the message. Uh, that's the point of the story, is that marriage doesn't satisfy. And so marriage is just one of the things. For her, right then, honestly, probably for weeks and weeks prior, she had realized, oh, because that's one of the classic ones. Marriage is that moment where I get to it, and then everything is exactly that what I wanted, what I dreamed. That's like one of the, but then there's other moments. There's careers, right? That this career will be everything I wanted, and that goal will be what I wanted. You go back further and further. You can go back further. It's a car. You can go back further. It's a game system. You can go further in the future. It's financial security, right? These things, once I get them, I won't have any more stress. I'll be able to be at peace, right? It can be any and every single thing that we pursue, whatever it is, we think these things will satisfy us. And we allow our minds to run crazy. We allow our hearts to run crazy. And we pursue and we pursue and we pursue. And, and often we keep going even after we find out it doesn't work. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't work. It doesn't satisfy. And, and here tonight in our story, we have a woman who tried marriage five different times. And each time she found that it didn't satisfy. And yet Jesus comes to her right there, right where she's at. And he puts his finger right on it because, not because he wants to speak harsh to her, but because he cares so greatly for her. That he wants to draw her out of this continual pursuit of what will satisfy me. What's this thing? And it can be different things for different people. But for her, this thing, he wanted to put his finger right on it. Not to be harsh, but instead to reveal and to then replace something that would truly satisfy for this thing that would never satisfy. And so let's, let's get in the text. Let's take a few um, looks at some context things, and then we'll apply this to our lives. So as we begin, in verse 4, it says, he needed to go through Samaria. He needed to go through Samaria. This isn't a statement of, of a map and directional statement. This is a statement that the author of this gospel, John, puts in there to, to make clear that Jesus had intentions. For Jesus, he says he needed to go, or the King James says he must needs go through Samaria because for this people, for the Jewish people, their natural uh, way of doing things when it came to traveling was to go around Samaria, to avoid Samaria at all costs. Because for them, the Samaritans, as we look at in the story of the Good Samaritan and other spots, they were despised. They were, they were kind of half-breed, Jewish in part, but then had blended in with other cultures, and they were the most despised. So they would be avoided. And so Jesus instead, it says, he must needs go through Samaria, or he had to go through Samaria. And just as a quick aside and takeaway from our main point for tonight, I love that our, our Jesus, our Father, he saw fit continually to go out of his way to places that others would not go because there was a need there. There was someone to meet. He was willing to pause. He was willing to stop. He was willing to go out of his way continually and constantly for people who needed to be met. And so for us as believers, when we are followers of Jesus, we need to never go around anyone. We need to never avoid a people. We need to never avoid an area. We need to never avoid a need. We can't look at things in that way. 
We have a father in heaven. We have a savior who never was willing to go around anyone. And so we need to have Jesus' heart in this. He was willing to. He saw it as necessary to go through Samaria. And so then we move on to our our next quick observation from this text. Let's reread verses 7 through 9. It says, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. So Jesus and his disciples had traveled to the area. We'll see in a second, his disciples had departed. But it says, a woman from the area came to draw water. He's already there. And he said to her as she arrives, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And then the woman of Samaria said to him, in shock and with a little bit of sass, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with a Samaritan. And so here we have, not only did he go out of his way, or really the truth is he went on the more direct route, but the more direct route that by all Jews was avoided. How is it that then he found this spot and then he found this woman and she is shocked because he came to her at this well. He was there for her. He asks her for a drink and she's shocked at the fact he would even talk to her because in this day, in this age, there there was a pecking order. There There was in the Jewish culture rabbis, then there was Jewish men, and then there was Jewish women, and then there was Samaritan men, and there was Samaritan women. And then honestly, because of her place in her culture, which we'll see from her being there at this time and her history, she was even below that. And so he comes to this well with the intention of finding her. I I believe that he most likely had sent his disciples away knowing they would just get in the way of this conversation. And so here he is, and he is there to speak with her. And she is astonished because she knows who she is. She knows who he is. She knows how they feel about her people and then about her. I mean, the, the, the Israelites were known for just despising the Samaritans. They tore down, she's going to mention in a little while, the temple where they worshiped. They tore down the Samaritans' temple 150 years prior to this. The, the, some of the rabbis who were known as the bruised and the bleeding, they so avoided women in general, so her, a Samaritan woman, they so avoided women in general that they were called the bruised and the bleeding because if a woman was walking near them, they would close their eyes so as not to look at a woman and they would walk into things and injure themselves. So they were called in their culture the bruised and the bleeding. And so she knows all of these things stacked up and this man is speaking to me and he's asking me for a drink. And really kind of what he's asking is to share a drink. Can can you share some water with me? And so then on top of that, going back a verse, it says in verse uh, verse nine that they had come there in the sixth hour of the day, that they had come to this place in the sixth hour of the day. Now, this would be about noonday. This would mean that they came at the highest part of the sun in a dry, in an arid place, in a hot place. They'd come in the sixth hour of the day. And so this was a time And this tells us more about her. This was a time where she had come in all likelihood to avoid other people. And obviously what we're going to see about her is that she's had five husbands. And so what we would derive from that is just that she is someone who, who feels an outcast, who has maybe been shamed, who has been ridiculed. And so she's come here looking to avoid other people. She's gone to great lengths. She's willing to put up with the heat. I don't know about you guys, I'm a big heat avoider. 
I will, I will hike at 6.30 in the morning to avoid the heat. I will do my yard work and be a really annoying neighbor at an early time to avoid the heat, right? And so she goes in the opposite direction because for her, what was worse than the heat was being in the presence of any of her, the people from her community because she had gone through so many things. She'd been wronged in so many ways. She herself had been put in so many different situations. So she just wanted to get away from other people. She wanted to be on her own. She had been failed by so many things in life. She had failed at so many things in life and she just wanted to seclude herself. And so this woman conveys to us a, a heart that felt a need to just be separated, a need to be on her own. And then in this, one more just kind of cultural context is that this really would have been beyond the Samaritan issues. This would have been an inappropriate place for Jesus to come to. This would have been an inappropriate place for a man to come to really. That men who would have come to a well often in these days would have been someone who was looking for a woman. Would have been someone, they know that's where the women gather. This was a job in that culture that women partook in. And so as they went there, that's the reason they would have gone there was to look for something that was perhaps inappropriate. It would have been a place where it's just like, what are you doing here? Kind of like if you guys have ever been to like a bridal shower or a baby shower. I don't know. Some of you guys, I don't want to offend anyone, but some of you like the co-ed baby showers. I felt so out of place being at one of my wife's baby showers. They made me go because my family was going to be there. And I just and you're trying to guess what's in the diaper. Is it Snickers or a Twix? And I just, not my thing. Uh, and for Jesus, this would have been a place that would have been shocking to see a man at. And so what we see here as just kind of our first takeaway is that Jesus went out of his way. He went to people who were unexpected and he went to a place that would have been considered semi-inappropriate for him to go. And he did all of these things to reach someone. And this isn't really even the point of the text tonight, but it's something that we can just see constantly in our gospels is that we have a savior who goes out of his way to inappropriate places, out of the way places, places that were despised, places that were looked down upon to reach people. And I am so continually blessed by our father having that mindset that he is willing to meet me in the places I shouldn't be. He's willing to meet me in the places where it's not meant for him to be. He's willing to go to the tax collector in the tree. He's willing to stop when someone reaches out and touches his garment. He's willing to go out of his way to speak to these people who were outcasts, to, to look them in the eyes and to let them know that they are cared for that there's someone who he intends to talk to, who he's willing to ask to share a drink with, that this is our Father's heart, and, and it blesses me. And so then we come back to this specific need that he's going to deal with for her. And let's read further in John chapter 4, verse 10. It says, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God. So she has just said, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink of me, a Samaritan woman? And he responds to her and her kind of sass, and her shock, and her awe. Why would you ask me for a drink? He says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks this water will thirst again. 
but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water, water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. She's thinking physically, I don't have to come. I don't have to do this practical task anymore. And Jesus said to her in verse 16, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. And the woman said, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. She's trying to distract him here. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one is to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship for the salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. And then verse 24, three more verses. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And the woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you am he. I love this text. It's one of the most powerful and profound progressions of discussion, I think, in all of the Gospels and perhaps the Bible. I love how it's laid out for us. And I feel that there's so much that God speaks to us from every single syllable that Jesus conveys to this woman and where she's at. And the order in which he does it and the way in which she, for weeks and months ahead, would come back to this conversation after she's now processing in hindsight, having the fullness of it, the thing that he said maybe fourth, inspiring and filling in the impact of what he had said second and what he had said first to her. And so let's break this down and look at our takeaways there in your notes. The first one is, you don't need that bucket anymore. I like to get a little silly with my titles. You don't need that bucket anymore. So she's come with a vessel in which to pull water out of this well. And Jesus is going to speak to her in a whole metaphor revolving around water and around retrieving that water from the well and about needing to try again to retrieve water and needing to get water again because the water that you had ran out and you're thirsty again. And this is going to be the whole thing that he speaks to her in. And one of the things that I just, I think Jesus is doing here in real life, really doing it, that I kind of always have a mentality of applying to my life and it's not real. I don't know if you guys do this, but I think it comes from having watched a lot of TV shows and movies growing up and just books and reading, where I always tend to have this mindset that the wise person I am talking to is operating kind of like Jesus where they're leading me to something, where they know kind of everything, and they're leading me to this kind of like revelation. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, I see what they were doing. But I do that in everyday life. Like I'm always doing that with uh, different people around me who disciple me. I'm just kind of assuming that they're doing that to me, you know, kind of like, a, like in the movies, like an old butler or a maid or a lion or a beaver, you know, or something like, like they're just kind of leading me to this revelation 
I do it with no one else more than Danny Ramos because he just has that vibe to him. He feels like someone who's like leading you to something incredible. And then, and then I'm kind of waiting for him to reveal the thing to me. And he does sometimes. Uh, but that's what Jesus is actually doing here. Let's, let's look through the progression. He says, he meets her by this well. He asks her for water, right? Knowing that her response would be surprise, shock, a little bit of bitterness about how they've been treated. He tells her she would have asked him. She should have, you, you probably should have asked me for water, he tells her. She then mocks him, you have no bucket. He then compels her with what he does have to offer. He says, but I have living water. So she's intrigued, right? She says, fine, then give me some of that water. And then this is where he kind of, he reveals, he kind of pulls the carpet out because they're talking about water. And he says, well, go get your husband. And she, she stops at that, right? And she kind of does that kind of backtracking thing where she says, well, let me talk to you about a little theology, you know? And she says, well, where, where, do the, where should we worship? Where do we worship? Where do you worship? And she wants to get into that because she's a little bit stunned by this husband thing, right? He's already, he's, he's intrigued her. And then he says, you know, it's, not about where we worship, the king is coming. God's gonna reveal himself. It's not gonna be a location, it's gonna be in us. And so then he reveals what he knows, that she does have a husband, that she's had five husbands. And it's just this whole thing where he brings her then back to the water and what he has to offer. And it's this just incredible and beautiful progression. And what it begins with is this idea that you don't need this bucket anymore. Because what he gets to in that finger-pointing moment where he puts his finger right on the issue of her life, and really it's the thing that he came there for. He came to meet a woman who had been trying to fill every bit of her life, all of these needs and wants and desires, her, her desire to be seen, her desire to be heard, her desire to be wanted. She had looked again and again and again. And whether it was divorce or whether it was being a widow, uh, she had lost five husbands. And yet now she's with someone else and she's, her hope is probably to find another one. And so what we have here is Jesus speaking to her right where she's at, literally this bucket that you keep putting into the water here physically, but metaphorically in looking for a spouse, you keep trying these things that will, thinking they will satisfy you, thinking that they will bring you what you want. And no matter how many times you've been through it, you're, gonna, you're looking at it again. You're thinking this is, this is because for a moment, maybe for a glimpse, you get like a little bit of what you've been looking for. You get a taste of it, but then it's gone. All of these men are sinners. All of them are people who are selfish. They're looking at, and it's not what you're looking for. And this is for her, but for all of us, there's so many things that we continually, we lower our buckets down into the well. We continually pull up whatever it is, the water that we think we need, but then we have to come back to the well the next day. We have to keep filling our buckets. And what Jesus wants to speak to her about is that you don't need this bucket anymore that you don't need to keep going back to this well. This thing has not done the trick. This thing has not satisfied you. The real issue is that you need living water, that you need someone who truly satisfies. You need someone who will see you, who does receive you, who loves you, irregardless of, of your worthiness of this love. And the things that we have sought to fill it with, the buckets that we have continually put down, hoping that water would fill us up, that it's not going to do the trick. And so he comes to her for this moment and for this specific topic, that she is someone who has time and time again gone after this thing. 
And I think for so many of us, we have those things. It can be how we're viewed by our friends. It can be our things. It can be any and every single thing that we pursue. But we go after these things. And we think they're going to fill us up. We think they're going to satisfy, only to find out that they don't at all. I mean, one of the clearest examples I've had in the last couple of years was my boys really wanted a Switch video game system. And for years, we were like, no, no, no. And finally, we we're like, you know, it, it'd be all right. We'll just, we'll be careful with it, okay? Well, you, you can get Switch. And so they had talked about it for years. It was the biggest, like, when they're in their 30s and their kids say, what's the biggest surprise Christmas present you ever got? It's going to be that Switch. They were shocked. They played it throughout Christmas break, and they go back to school, and they're excited because one of the reasons they really want is their friends were always talking about it. They were always talking about their Switch and about the game that they played. And so they go back to school. My oldest comes home after the first day of school, after Christmas break, and he's just discouraged and dejected. And we're like, what's wrong? And he's like, they're playing different games now. Some of them have a different system now, right? And he just, he, he'd enjoyed his little Christmas break. But one of his biggest things that he thought would satisfy would be that he'd be right there with them. And I was like, buddy, we're always going to be buying the used gear, so you're never going to be right there with them, right? Uh, we're going to be getting hand-me-down video games. No. Uh, and so he went, and it just, it was such a perfect example of just these things do not satisfy. Even if he had been with them for a couple of weeks where they were all playing the same game, it would have kept moving. He would have gotten over it. He did get over it. And so we, we seek to continually put this bucket down in the water. Well, maybe this will satisfy. Maybe this will fix it. And what Jesus came to this woman to say was that it's no longer about trying to fill this bucket. These five tries haven't worked, but I have something that will fill you up. All right, our next point is why pay for food? I like, I like silly titles. Uh, why pay for food? So Isaiah 55. I love this text, especially in applying it here in looking at the woman at the well. Isaiah 55, verse 1 says, Is anyone thirsty? Come and drink. Even if you have no money, come take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. Maybe Diet Coke, too. Why spend... I love Diet Coke. Okay, uh, verse 2. Why spend your money on food that does not give you strength? Why pay for food that does not satisfy? Listen to me, and you will eat what is good. You will enjoy the finest food. Come to me with your ears wide open. Listen, and you will find life. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. I will give you all the unfailing love I promised to David. Why pay for food that does not satisfy? Listen to me, and you will eat what is good, and you will enjoy the finest food. And he's not talking about food. It says, come to me with ears wide open. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. You will find life. God calls us to not continually pursue these things. He says, why do you pay for things that won't fill you up? Why do you give yourself? And really what, what he's saying is, why do you give your, your time capital? You give your time to these things that won't fill you up. You give your emotional capital to these things that won't fill you up. You give your aspirational capital, your dreaming, your, your goals, your, your passions and desires. You give yourself to these things and they won't fill you up. You give all of your thoughts, you give your actual money to these things that will not satisfy. And he says, come to me and I will give you something that will satisfy. I will give you food that doesn't cost anything, it's free. 
And in it, you will find life. You'll find an everlasting covenant. And so he says to us to not continually to pursue these things and to not pay for them with all of these different parts of our hearts, with all of these different parts of our lives. Instead, come to me and I will freely give you these things that will fill you up, that will satisfy you, that will be what you have been looking for. And that's really the, one of the big keys is that we, we look for the wrong things. We have eyes for the wrong things. When he says, come to me, and he says here in this text, he says that he will give us living water. So that's our next one, his living water. John 4, 13, right there in the middle. He's, Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. This, this what's in the well, or for her, this seeking of husbands, or any and everything we have filled in already and more, he says, but in verse 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. It's continual. It's replenishing. It doesn't run dry. Her response is, give me some so I don't have to keep coming back here physically. But it's like, no, it's not that you don't have to come back here physically. It's that you don't have to keep looking to fill yourself with everything and anything in this world to scratch all these itches, to fill this need and wants. So he says to come to him for his living water. And we, we need to build with this living water, that we need to have this be the foundation of how we pursue God and how we pursue life, how we assess and how we view things, that we want his living water, yes, for our satisfaction, but that then also it would be his living water for all of our expectations. It'd be his living water for our, our career paths and all that we'll pursue. It's his living water for how we prioritize life. That his living water will change how we build our objectives, how we pursue things. That when we are pursuing him, when we allow him to satisfy, we're no longer ranking things in the same way that we are ranking things. Because the truth is, oftentimes we, I've noticed this thing, I do it, and, and maybe you do it, I feel like a lot of people do it, where we say we have certain priorities and certain lists and ways in which we prioritize things. And so for a lot of us here in the church, we would say, you know, it's God, and then we would say it's family, and then it's, uh, you know, maybe our jobs and our kids and their schooling and everything, you know, or sorry, kids, jobs, schooling. <laughs> I meant it the way I is a slip up. Uh, and, uh, and yet we have this correct priorities in how we verbalize it. And yet then when you look at how, if you, if you just assessed looking at our lives and you assessed how we actually lived and where our money went and where our time capital went and where our emotional capital went and where our aspirational capital went, you, you would say just from looking at that, that it, it's, that's not the actual order we're living off of. Because the truth is that we often, while we verbalize this, we pursue a different order. Well, if you spend that much time, if you're taking that job, if you're doing this, and if you're spending all your time with that, and if you're doing all of these extracurriculars and whatever it is, it looks like that's not your actual order. And what I'm saying from this text is if we pursue God and seek our satisfaction from him, that will, the, the reaction in our lives will be that we then prioritize correctly. The reaction will be that we no longer place the opinion of, of our peers as such a high necessity. We no longer place these objects or these 
goals or these things that we thought would satisfy us. If we know they don't satisfy us, and if we seek our satisfaction from him, then we don't give them the priority and we don't give them the place that they, they were never meant to have in our lives. That when we walk in it correctly with satisfaction in him, the outcome that we don't even have to consider or think about is that we're, not, we're no longer prioritizing things that shouldn't have been a higher priority to begin with. So his living water is living and active. It's, it's for salvation. Yes, he brings us salvation, but then he brings us the living water to walk in and to live in in everyday life. It's both and. It's both the eternal consequences and the very real current outcome that we are with him, that he is moving in us. So then on top of that, it not only speaks to how we build our lives, but it speaks to how we pray and what we ask for. So my next point is that we, you're asking for the wrong things, that we come to him and we ask incorrectly because we're asking based off of what we think will satisfy us, what we have deemed necessary, what we have deemed worthy of our petitions and our, our requests to him. So there in verse 10, I like how the message says it. It says, Jesus answered, if you knew the generosity of God and who I am, you would be asking me for a drink and I would give you fresh living water. If you knew the generosity of God, how many, do we know the generosity of God? Do we know how incredible, it's never a question of his generosity. He is always willing. And yet when, it's how we come to him, it's what we're pursuing, it's, it's what our hearts are seeking after. James 4.1 speaks of this when it says, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? I think I said that exact line four times this week in my house to my kids. Uh, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And when, even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure, what will give you a temporary satisfaction. And so it says that we, we have a generous God, but we come to him asking for things that are amiss. We come asking for things that don't line up. You know, I, I was trying to think of an example, and I only had, came up with a bad one, so I'm going to give you that. Um, I was trying to think, and I, I pictured like a kid coming to, uh, to their parent and saying, hey, I want to go to the beach. Can I have some roller skates so I can skate 30 miles to the beach? You know, and the parent just being like, shouldn't I just drive you? You know, shouldn't I take care of this for you, right? And we come to God and we say, give me this thing so I can have what I want. And he's saying, I want to give you what you're asking for, but your avenue to what you're asking for is wrong. The path that you want to take to the thing that you want, it won't get you there. You'll fall on the way. It'll be fleeting and lacking in every single way possible. But what you want, I want to give you. You're just asking for it through the wrong avenue, through the wrong path, with the wrong motives. And so we're asking for the wrong things. We're coming to him with a mindset that, that we have in mind what will satisfy all too often. When it says he is, if you knew the generosity, if you knew the generosity, 
He is generous. He wants to do these things, but we come with a wrong mindset, with a wrong mind. And so what we want to take away is this. Our fifth point, we want to be satisfied in him. That we want to begin by seeking our satisfaction in Jesus. We want to begin there. And then when we seek that, uh, you know, relationships, they will be a blessing because they won't be required to fulfill everything we ever wanted. When we get that career, when we pursue a job, when we go after these other things, they'll be a nice blessing because they never were meant to satisfy. They were never meant to be the culmination. And so he says that we are to be satisfied in him. Verse 25, she asks him, the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Another translation says he will, he will explain everything we need. And Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. I am the I am. I am he. So she says, the Messiah will come. He'll tell us everything we need. And he says, I am he. I am the Messiah. And I am also everything that you need. I'm everything that you want. I am the one. He is the one that satisfies. He satisfies our debt, yes, in salvation, but he satisfies everything that we could ever want. Every accolade, every opinion of every other person, every grade, every promotion, every dollar sign number, he satisfies all of it. We are to be satisfied in him. We are not to keep dropping our bucket down in any well. We're not to keep looking for a new bucket to fill us up today, only to be thirsty again tomorrow. But we are to be satisfied in him, to allow him to fill us, to allow him to wash out of us, to let his spirit flow, that living water within us, to where he is our satisfaction. Jesus went through Samaria to meet this woman, to bring her out of a pattern of pursuit of satisfaction that had failed and to bring her into a satisfaction of his grace and love and mercy. And I have to think that for her, if she had been given the opportunity, she would have asked for a sixth husband and she would have had a list from five husbands of experience what she wanted in a sixth one. And I think so many of us are to be in that same place. If he came to us, I know the last couple jobs haven't worked, but this next one will. I know these friends haven't worked out, but I need this person to like me. I need this to work out. And he just says, I am he. I am the one who will fill this need. I am the one that you want. I am what you have been looking for. G. Campbell Morgan in his commentary on this text said it really well. He says, as we look at this woman, we have the truth emphasized that the wreckage of human life is always the result of false attempts to satisfy its legitimate claims. What was the meaning of this wrecked life, this spoiled personality, this burnt out human being? It's kind of harsh. It was all the result of an attempt to satisfy a perfectly legitimate claim of personality by false methods. False methods. That's the continual lowering of the bucket. That's the continual seeking of these different things. They're false methods to get that thing that God truly wants to give to us, that feeling that he wants to give to us, that he wants to be in us. And so we finish with this. She left her bucket. John 4, 28. 
the woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone. And we see that there's, there's a little revival that happens in this city. But she left her bucket at the well. She left that thing that had been the path, that had been her attempts, that had been her way to try and satisfy. She left it there and ran away, leaving behind all of her attempts, leaving behind all of these things, embracing what Jesus is offering. And so my question to us is, will we leave our buckets? Will we stop trying to drop them down into the well? Will we stop thinking that we're going to have a different outcome, that this time it will satisfy? This is the thing I actually was looking for. I was wrong before. Will we seek our satisfaction in him? Will we be filled up by the one who truly seeks to be the I am, to fill that need, to be our grace and our power, our strength, our living water flowing out of us? Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.